Welcome to the Bards FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to a conversation with Senior Chief Dixon Brown, a signatory on the Declaration of Military Accountability. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots. And tonight we have another member of the signatory group from the Declaration of Military Accountability, Senior Chief Dixon Brown. This is a powerful voice. He's actually the 231st signatory on the list. And he's really an amazing voice, an amazing testimony of someone who's put in amazing service, a high achiever, and who once again, the military is driven out because of his choice to stand against the vax. What's really interesting about this story tonight is you're going to hear him talk about how working down range, which he was in the Philippines, the procedures that he went through because of the true belief that there was a major threat, and then his process of going through this, of coming to the truth, and then once he made that pivot to the truth and questioned the authority, how people literally, how he was treated and then eventually forced out of the military. We are in a very critical time here. And we are continuing to see the corruption of our system evolve and get deeper and deeper. And these are people that are entrenched and they're continuing to build policies and they're continuing to promote those policies to continue to corrupt and swing people into their way of believing. Their vision of a future, and they're trying to leave this echo behind, no matter whether they're removed from office or not, is to entrench in the mentality of people that vaccines and this biological warfare threat is going to be persistent and be forever. And as you probably heard today, since apparently the COVID threat's not working well enough, time to roll out the Russian nuclear threat of some sort of space-based system, which came out today. All of this is hype. They only rule by fear. And once they can get that momentum going, they know that they can bring the public along with them. That isn't to say that there aren't real threats in the world, because there are. And I'm not going to push everything off towards a false flag idea or a false flag narrative, which is more appropriate. But nonetheless, these threats that are being promoted right now are enticing and they're driven to try to create and instill fear in the public, which ultimately gives them a great deals of levers and control over people's emotions and their way of thinking. Keeping centered on all of this at all times is critical. And we come back to this time and time again, and you'll hear this in tonight's interview, the center point of Holy Spirit. Once we anchor ourselves there, the ability for them to swing us becomes very, very minimal. And again, that's the other part of this is to get us away from their cycles of fear, which means breaking the dependencies that they want us on and pivoting to a place where we are literally able to have a bit of calm, a focus, and an understanding that we are, we are the children of the Most High. We should be anchored in the land, and we are truly the priests and the princes of the world. They should be subordinate to us, not the other way around. Now, patriots, before we get going tonight, there's a couple of things. 
one is very important to understand is that they are dealing with, we are dealing with a monetary system manipulation. And they are trying to break down this, their, our ability to function in this monetary system. That means we have all sorts of threats going along across the world. We see the, mili- the monetary system collapsing back. Japan's economy dropped today. The Wall Street, dro- Wall Street Dow dropped today 700 points. We're seeing these shifts and these instabilities happening all over the place. And that's all at the center point of a fiat currency that has no backing in gold. Your IRAs and 401ks are at risk. And it's important to get those anchored in some form of precious metals and tangible, tangible asset. Birch Gold is a place to go. They, are, they have been with us now for over a year and a half. They have literally provided fantastic support for patriots to continue to move us to a place where we can move the IRAs and 401ks you have into a precious metals tax-deferred accounts and help you set those up as well. So to get hold of them, Type in BARDS and text it to 989898. Again, BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, and text it to 989898. You'll receive an information packet in return. Read through it. Become informed. Then give them a call. Ask them how they can help you, and they will walk you through this. They're a great company. They're a great group of people. This is critical. We are in some windows here of change that are pretty radical. And these windows of change are going to bring tremendous change on a global level protect your hard-earned retirement income and set yourself up into a place where you are not going to be at risk. So again, text BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898. Do it today. Get your info packet, become informed, and go from there. Now, there is a, a discussion today. I want you to hear this before we get going, and it's about two minutes and 45 seconds. I want you to hear this. This is from Klaus Schwab, and it kind of sets up something to keep in mind that these interviews that we're having, that I'm bringing up the DMA, this fight is long from over. And there's a pivot happening on a global level right now that they're trying to normalize their change. They went through a brutal and and trauma-based attack on the world population. They are now moving and pivoting away from that very quickly to try to smother out and try to brush under the rug any sense of accountability. Remember the principle behind this. The idea behind the DMA, the Declaration of Military Accountability, is that last word, accountability. Accountability within the leadership of our military. The generals, every general within our ranks violated the law. They mandated a experimental vax, which is against the law. It's against the, it, the Constitution, and it's against the law, period. And they did it. That's a violation of their oath. It's an act of treason because they then have waged war against our soldiers. We've had soldiers that died and have permanently disabled. And they're trying to do a replacement strategy within the military to create a military that lacks combat experience, that is now dependent upon their masters who are going to replace them with these immigrants, many of these immigrants coming across the border. That will give them a group of people that will be willfully listening to them, not the Constitution, because tied to their service will be a promise of citizenship. And then there's a class of people that are now going to be destroyed by this vax that will be dependent on the Veterans Administration and all the medical and medicines that are provided for them by a corrupt system. This is the big, the big disaster that we're facing as a nation. Now, this is... One of our favorite villains, this is Klaus Schwab. I want you to listen to this before we get going tonight because it's very important to listen to how his tenor has changed. But listen closely to this picture they're painting in the future. Here we go. 
And when I was speaking here seven years ago, after having written a book about the fourth industrial revolution, I showed how this revolution will change how we live, how we act, how we communicate, how we produce, and how we consume. Now, we are speaking not just about the fourth industrial revolution. We are speaking about the transition of humankind into a new era, which is not just characterized by technological change. A new era where humankind will enjoy many more opportunities and possibilities. It's a transition. It's a transition from the, we first had the transition about 100 years ago, from the agricultural society to the industrial society. But today, we speak about the transition into what I would call the intelligent age. And I did something maybe unusual. I took ChatGPT, and I had a long discussion with ChatGPT, with my pot, if I may say so, to see how this new era will look like. And finally, I had about 20 pages of text and I asked ChatGPT, summarize the text and tell me now, based on our discussion, how will the new era, the intelligent era, look like? And I read you the text. Envisioning a future propelled by the technologies of the fourth industrial revolution, we see a new dawn of human civilization, one that harmonizes technology with the deepest needs and aspirations of humanity. This vision unfolds within a society where artificial intelligence, robotics, the internet of the things, 3D printing, genetic engineering, quantum computing, become the foundations of our daily life. This is amazing. They just soft-pedaled and made it sound great that we are going to be in a world where genetic modification, Internet of Things, which means they're tracking every single thing in your life, quantum computing, which means you have no privacy and everything is monitored, the police state, sounds so good. And what they just described to you was a prison planet but they don't need metaverse anymore. It's here all around you. By the way, in the front row of that group at the world, this is the World Governance Conference, the World Governance Conference. I just thought I would mention that in the front row is Tucker Carlson. So just saying. You don't get there unless you're part of the, of the cult. Just saying. You don't just get invited. So you have to understand what's at play here. And it's very hard to find truth in these days, and it's easily hard, it's even more, more difficult to find people that will stand for truth. And our objective has to always come back to our foundations in Scripture, the Holy Spirit, and what is right. In all of this, not one mention was made, naturally, of the damage that this vaccine has caused. 
Not one mention has been made of the accountability of the lives that has been have been shredded and destroyed. And not one mention has been made of how they will ultimately gain total supremacy and control over humanity that follows this model. This is the future of our world if we let it happen, and we can't. So with that, allow me to introduce to you Senior Chief Dixon Brown of the Declaration of Military Accountability, the 231st Signatory. Well, Patriots, I'm really honored today to have Senior Chief Dixon Brown with us. He comes from Special Amphibious Reconnaissance, and he's a corpsman and has an amazing story today. Once again, a signer on the Declaration of Military Accountability, and like so many things, a victim of a system that literally turned its ire onto soldiers who were trying to exercise their free will, their constitutional right to not take a vax mandate of, a, of an experimental shot that ultimately has ended up with so much destruction. So, Senior Chief, how are you doing? Good. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. I, um, the more, the more I get to know you and just for the listening audience, the more I just learn about you and I've listened to a few of your shows now and just learning who you are as a person, your character, I'm realizing how, how much of an honor it truly is to be here uh, with you today. And so I'm just thankful God lined and put each other in our, our each other's paths. And I'm just thankful for what you're doing for this nation. Um, uh, thank you, Chief. Yeah. That's humbling. Thank you. I mean, your service is amazing. Let's start with a little bit about just some of your background. Like, how did you get in the Navy and how'd that all happen? Yeah, yeah. So, like I said, I'm senior chief, re retired just last month. Um, and, you know, I couldn't imagine never being, ever being in this position, uh, this position here in front of you. You know, I grew up on a farm, uh, 120 acres in Idaho. And it just feels like yesterday, like, I was literally, you know, it feels like yesterday I was sitting there, setting irrigation pipes, getting eaten alive by mosquitoes and daydreaming about what my future could be. And uh, that that's kind of what forced me into the military was that kind of that rough lifestyle, being raised on a farm, realizing that I needed to, you know, get that, uh, you know, I guess societally proposed uh, or, or propositioned, uh, you know, degree things like that. I need to earn some sort of living for myself. And so that, that's what brought me into the military is kind of that farm lifestyle, realizing I need to make a name for myself and do something else. And um, just never thought I'd be here. Um, and, you know, but what I've realized and realized lately is, you know, when the, when the Lord calls, you know, as he does in Isaiah 6, uh, 8 through 12, when he calls you to follow him, you got to follow him and you're going to follow him till, till, you know, everything's destroyed until it's all rubble. And, and that's where I'm at right now. The Holy Spirit's called me to call, and I, I've resisted as much as I can, you know, and, and to the point where it's like, all right, Lord, I, I got to follow you. Um, and so, yeah, that's hopefully what I would like to sh show the audience today is kind of my story and my story through through an affidavit that I wrote um, after I became a whistleblower and my attempts to stalt, stop and halt the, you know, destruction of our military with the COVID-19 shots and boosters. Just for, so for the sake of audience knowledge, kind of give us a perspective on where Senior Chief sits in the ranking. Yeah, so Senior Chief uh, is a E8, so you have a enlisted pay grades and you have officer pay grades. So enlisted pay grades go from E1 to E9, so I was an E8. Um, typically, kind of, uh, you're very senior enlisted. Uh, most of the times within a company or battalion, I'd be, you know, top 10 as far as advisors to the commander. 
um, somewhere in that that triage of things. You know, I guess in my last position, I was overseeing the healthcare and religious uh, administration to like 3,900 uh, Marines and sailors. I was directly responsible for about 140 um, uh, sailors. Wow, it's fantastic. Well, let's get into your affidavit because I think this is the meat of the story. And I mean, you 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 are a signer on the DMA, and I think that's that's where we want to get to is like what that represents. But let's get a context of where where you were. Yeah. So my my affidavit, and just for anybody, I'll, I'll plug it up front. It is actually online. It's been published at the uh, truthforhealth.org, and uh, it's under the header of Navy Special Operations Medic Speaks Out. Um, so my affidavit, I kind of went through a chronological of what occurred to me and kind of tried to break it down in very logical steps. And the hope was that I would get my leadership to read it and come to their senses and kind of see the damage that's occurred. And I feel like I was in a unique position because as a senior enlisted, as a special operations medic, I didn't feel the pressure like junior enlisted felt. I wasn't getting as coerced. I wasn't getting, uh, you know, I wasn't as susceptible to the pressure that was occurring. Um, and so I really wanted to take all the feedback I was getting from the junior enlisted and from these uh, different, you know, people and seeing the damage that was occurring and all the intel analysis that I was doing, I was trying to relay that back to them for them to see the light. Um, so, you know, my experience in credentials, like I said, I my last position, I was a senior enlisted medical advisor. I was in charge of uh, 22 Special Operations Medic and 450 Reconnaissance Marines. I was also a senior enlisted Navy senior enlisted leader for 130 sailors and oversaw five units and 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 the medical care provided to them. Um, my medical training, I had four years of combined uh, military medical training. So it's like anything from trauma medicine, seaburn, um, you know, very operational mind mindset. But I also, in you know, my off-duty hours, got my degree from George Washington University in clinical health sciences. And there were things within that degree that I think really put me in a position to see the light here and to be able to research uh, what was happening during COVID-19. So I did studies in research and bioethics, and uh, I used all that to draw conclusions about what I was seeing uh, during COVID in, in the last three years. Um, as far as my experience, you know, I've had 12 deployments. Uh, throughout my career, uh, you know, from Iraq uh, to SEAL delivery vehicles. I was working in a, a SEAL command out of Hawaii earlier in my career. I did duties as far as a uh, personal security detachment for the president in Asia, did multiple of those. Worked with MARSOC, uh, deployed in Mindanao primarily, doing counterterrorism with their people down there. And then in recon, uh, my last unit in recon, I, I was kind of where this all came to a head. I checked in uh, just a few months prior to the military mandates. And so I really was kind of put out to pasture at that command, but I did manage to sneak in a uh, deployment unvaccinated while there um, to the border in support of the Customs Border Patrol in 2022. Um, you know, my career, it wasn't uh, much like most people, signers of the DMA. You know, their careers and my career was marked by accolades of high performance marks, early promotions, and nine personal awards, personally. Um, and I prided myself, on honestly, on not accepting anything but the most demanding schools and assignments. Um, you know, I was a Navy diver. It wasn't enough. And I decided to go back to, to you know, in 
further trained myself. I became a special operations IDC, so that's a reconnaissance training. I became a free fall jumper. I went, went to multiple SEER courses more than I needed to. Uh, I went uh, through rope suspension training, so I was a hearse master. Um, that's the guy that kind of rigs the helicopters for uh, repelling guys, and he's kind of in charge of the whole evolution within the aircraft of sending guys out. Um, I also put myself through, uh, or I was attempting to go to sniper school, and if anybody's been, you know, aware of what snipers go through, they typically, once you say you want to go become a sniper, the, the guys that are snipers take you through uh, multiple phases of indoctrination where they kind of see if you have the metal to actually survive the school. Um, and so I didn't end up going, but, you know, it was one of those points in my career where it was like, I'm too old to be doing this, yet I still did it because I wanted the challenge. And, and uh, so and then, you know, as it COVID-19 mandates came, you know, I can only, you know, I can only attribute my ability to stand up against this and to to see the light, to see the, you know, the coercive pressure, to see the, you know, to have conviction over this. I can only attribute it to my faith. Um, and, and my conviction came directly from the Holy Spirit. And I really think it was the 17 years of training that helped me open my eyes, but it was the Lord that gave me the conviction to stand up and do what was right, to give me that overwhelming sense of responsibility to to stand for what was right, to to ostensibly immediately, you know, the hand that fed me for 17 years. Yeah, you know, I was uh, I was 17 years old when I enlisted, you know, so I was spent a year in a delayed entry program. And then right when I turned 18, I went to boot camp. So it's like they literally, you know, I was belt fed and indoctrinated from from the get go. I was still very impressionable. And so to turn on that, I mean, it's it's traumatizing. It's pretty wild to to turn on that. And I can only give that conviction to the Holy Spirit. Chief, let me uh, jump in here real quick. Cause yeah. A couple of things yeah. you hit on, and I, I think they're really important to highlight. Um, one is your comment that, you know, your career is very much like others on the DMA, which is important to recognize because it is a high achievement list of people. This isn't just, these are just not just people that are disgruntled. These are people that stood for the moral character, the moral values, the constitution and uh, the, the oath. I mean, that's, and that took an extreme level of moral character. And so I, I want you to just talk a little bit about that because everything you've described, if people don't understand because of lack of context in military, not because they don't understand it, but the schools you've gone through, the the achievements you've just listed here, which are, and I know just from what you've said, are understated. It's a tremendous level of accomplishment. And I, I compliment you on it, but I just want you to speak a little bit to that caliber of the people that you're meeting in the DMA, that that's who you are. That's what you represent. That's what that whole group represents. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it. I, I've talked to some of these guys and it's, you know, you get to know them near you, you know, the type of caliber of the person they are, but these aren't the people they've never had a blemish on the record. You know, they've never had any sort of adverse action or anything like that. And in, in fact, uh, you know, I was my guest speaker in retirement was Mark Pasha, uh, first lieutenant Mark Pasha. He was a prior enlisted, uh, senior enlisted, and then he converted to an officer program. And his first duty station was at Army Health Services Command. But when he he ended up standing up against the vaccine mass and the uh, testing because they were all EUA. And during his court martial, they had even said themselves that he'd had a pristine record. You know, the, it was the admittance uh, of that, like, hey, you've been nothing but the finest of soldiers we've ever, ever had. And it's the same type of thing all across the board. Uh, 
you know, the guy that retired me the same way. Uh, he's a uh, Lieutenant Bill Mosley, same thing. He was prior enlisted, commissioned to an officer, uh, saw it as his duty to stand up for his oath. And same thing, The um, what the disparity between the two of those guys is, is his board ruled in his favor. They found him not at fault and they voted to, uh, they ruled to retain him. And so he still main, remains retained, whereas Mark Peshaw was uh, eliminated from service. But, you know, these type of people, highest performance marks, no blemishes on the records, outstanding moral character. And and you could spend five minutes with them, realize how genuine these people are. And they're literally the the, the cream in the pot. Uh, they're, they're the top notch service members, um, you know, nobody could take down or break down their character and, and call them anything but that. That's well said, really well said. So continue, because this story is really fascinating, Chief. I mean, it's the other part I guess I would hit on is you just kind of segue into your return to your affidavit. And we talked a little bit about this before the show, and you said it. You've been in 17 years. That's the world you've known. And it's hard for people to understand sometimes that, what that is like when you've put your whole life into something and then suddenly like one day to the next, it isn't that you're retiring from it and doing a transition out. It's taken. It's just stolen from you. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I commonly describe it as like a stage of grieving. You mm -hmm. know, you, you lose a loved one and you, you go through, you know, all the stages, the anger, the remorse, the, you know, the doubt, uh, all of it. And you kind of go through it and you process it. And I've had my own, uh, I had my own battle with processing it. I mean, quite frankly, did all these high stress trainings in my whole career. I've never had heart palpations, never had anxiety, never had these things. I literally was in, had anxiety from this whole thing, thinking I was going to get everything ripped away from me. And, uh, you know, in a, in a effort to protect myself, I did what most service members did that had religious background. They surrendered religious accommodation. Um, you know, not, not only did I do that, I, I sought a bunch of, you know, formal and informal methods to try to bring awareness and try to halt this and try to save my career. Um, ultimately, religious accommodation was denied, and then there's a right to appeal it, and I appealed that to the Commonwealth and Marine Corps. And I appealed, my appeal was very lengthy, you know, it was like, I don't know how many pages my personal thing was, but the whole enclosure was 190 pages, and I was just imploring him to look at his policies, look at what we were saying, and just bring a light. And it's been, I'm looking at, I kind of did the math this morning. It's been over two and a half years. I never got a response back from the Commandant of the Marine Corps on the, on the matter. Um, so, you know, anytime they came after me for, for more vaccines, I, you know, I just say, hey, I'm still pending, you know, and <laughs> two and a half years pending. Sure. That's it. So, but yeah, the, really my story with COVID um, starts in January, 2020, I was deployed just prior, just a few weeks prior to the start of the, you know, the first uh, notice sent out about uh, this COVID-19, I think SARS-CoV-2 is what they were calling it then. And um, came out, I actually ignored it, deleted the email. One of my uh, medics actually sent to me, hey, there's more coming out about this thing. You may want to look at it. I called uh, my senior medical back in Hawaii and, and they said, hey, yep. Yeah, Right now, we're, we're tracking it. I'm about to go to a meeting this week. They came back from the meeting. They said, hey, all the experts in D.C. are saying this thing's not a biological weapon, and uh, but we do need to prepare for 10% casualties. So you need to prepare yourself. And um, 
so, you know, with the faced with the reality that it could be up to 10% mortality rate, I started preparing. I used all my sea burn training, um, all my medical training to reinforce our forces downrange. Um, and basically, I ended up having to shut down. You know, there was a lot of turmoil going in our operating environment in the Philippines, but we are in Mindanao, Philippines. We had a bunch of outstations, and we had issues with the visiting forces agreement going on with the country. So we decided you know, disease plus this political uh, fallout. We're going to pull all the uh, outstations back to our main camp. We're going to get rid of non-essential personnel. We're going to do what we do best. We're going to follow the protocols. We're going to start enacting these protocols. I made all my own protocols for decontamination, bleach spraying of the camp, uh, I don't know, isolation, quarantines. I made a like a 5,000 square foot unit uh, uh, ICU. I had a five-bed ICU. I ordered in, you know, half a million to three-quarters of a million dollars worth of equipment. Had them send me an emergency room physician because at the time I was the I was a senior medical provider, but I wasn't actually a doctor. You know, I functioned in the military like a PA is what I functioned like, but I didn't have an actual doctor there with me. So, hey, send me a doctor. So I got an ER uh, physician sent down range to me. He was pretty junior, but, you know, very, very smart. And so we set about doing all this stuff. We got all the medications, enough, you know, uh, uh, enough narcotics to innovate somebody for 10 days. Um, all the ventilators, it, it was pretty wild what we set up there on this little teeny camp and we were ready for, you know, doomsday. And uh, time drug on and we kept, you know, protecting ourselves and we never had a single case on that camp the whole time I was there. And, uh, you know, of course, you put, you know, 100 uh, special operators into a, a postage stamp fob and tell them all to stay six feet apart and uh, wear their masks all day long. You know, you hit a lot of resistance and it wasn't popular. I went from I was literally Dr. COVID. I was like mini Anthony Fauci downrange, just implementing all the most draconian measures I could think of to keep everybody safe. Um, the commander had me partnered with the local mayor. So the city was about, it's over a million, the local city, and it's a third world city. And they had me partnered with her um, going through and just uh, helping them protect. I was on our code task force and they would ask for advice. I would sit in these weekly meetings with the WHO, Equal Health Alliance, USAID, DITRA, US Embassy, Australian Embassy, you know, and they call it partners, uh, community or strategic partners, I think is what their partnerships is what they were calling it. So in these weekly meetings, talking about this stuff and how we're going to fix things, what labs do we need to set up, what laboratory equipment do we need to get them? And, uh, you know, that was really kind of me the first year of this thing, or I guess the first eight months was completely draconian, COVID measures to the max. But, you know, when I left deployment to go home, my wife was pregnant. She was nine months pregnant. Like the last thing I wanted, we already delayed a month. I was like, hey, if Transcom at the Air Force finds out that we have somebody with COVID, they're not going to transport us. So we're going to stay free from this thing. You know, and so as soon as I got back, I was conflicted. I was like, okay, the local town didn't have a bunch of ventilator patients. We didn't have a single case. Um, these people are shutting, they're crushing their economy. You know, people are starving because they're crushing their economy. People are probably dying from, you know, from starvation rather than COVID. So, like, it doesn't match. Our response doesn't match the threat right now. And I was really conflicted. So when I got back, you know, I just, 
all right, Lord, show me what you want to show me. And I, I really took a step back. The command was trying to get me back into the COVID policy and the rear and garrison. I told them, no, I said, I can't handle it. I'm, I'm burnt out, you know? And so I really sat about just observing. And I kind of did what military trained me best to do, collect information, process information, and make an educated decision. And that's really what I did from end of October, uh, so August of 2020, until the mandates started in August of 2021, I just observed and I sat and I watched and I, I tried to not get consumed by it, but be just very aware of what was going on. And uh, yeah, it um, ultimately what what transpired is that it just didn't make sense that we were able to kick these vaccines off in the way that they did. Um, it seemed rushed, it seemed like it was too fast and the, the data wasn't there to support it. And, you know, and, and so I guess I'll get into my religious beliefs a little bit, and that kind of takes me into kind of what transpired after that. Sure. Um, That's good. Yeah. So just you know, something I want to say real quick, Chief, and I, I think yeah. it's important. I, we were all in that very conflicted space, all of us. I was having a conversation with Doc Chambers yesterday, and I was on the phone with one of my uh, soft D buddies, and we were talking, it's like talking about what had gone on in Dietrich, and it's like, this goes back to even a 1999 brief that some of this was lining up for. And we were both like, is, you know, we could, we had a pretty good suspicion that there was, this wasn't all right, especially if some of the places I'd worked up in the labs, but you're still were asking yourself in the back of your head, like, what is this? We don't really know. Right. It doesn't really come clear, at least from outside of the military circle, it didn't start to come clear until we start to see this, crazy um, high-speed development of the VAX. And I start to look at the requirements that are being put out there and the for the development and this, the contract money that's being dropped on this. And I'm like, okay, I've seen this. This not for this. This was some other crazy stuff coming out of labs for super soldier projects. This isn't has nothing to do with this agenda, this has to do with their agenda of transhumanism. And that's really when the light bulb started to go on. I'm like, okay, this is way wrong. But I, my point to you is there is a period we were all in trying to sort out what this craziness is. I think the biggest thing is that the different worlds, when you're operating downrange and you're in a, I don't know that people realize how far out front that means when you're there with a special operations team, you said a hundred guys, you're the life and you're the, that's literally your world. So it, yeah. you have to do everything you can to protect their well health and welfare. Where back here, we've got a pretty good latitude. You know, we have people, and it, yeah. a lot of latitude yeah. to move. Actually, to to kind of put that in perspective, so I had a um, one of my uh, my commander actually had a had a health emergency with a, a cardiac issue, and wasn't COVID, wasn't anything like that. And he, it literally took me three days to get him out of the country to uh, appropriate medical care wow. because we were locked down. We couldn't get him. We couldn't fly him anywhere. By the time we got him somewhere, you know, we'd pissed off everybody uh, in the surrounding countries by trying to get him out of country. We ended up having to like take him in through non-standard air to get him there. It was just like, well, could think I didn't have any trauma victims because they would have just died here at, at the hands of me, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's probably what would have happened, you know? But yeah, so it, it's kind of amazing, like you were saying, like I kind of prayed to God, like, Lord, show me how I'm wrong on this thing. You know, show me, reveal to me that this is just 
on a bad dream and I'm on the wrong side of it and it's just a nightmare. Then let me wake up and realize my errors. And I, I've even for, for years, you know, not only, you know, in the beginning, but even deep into it a year, I'm like, maybe I have it all wrong. You know, maybe something will start coming out and the information will start to write itself and somebody will show me the error of my ways. That's not what happened. And and I'm just thankful, you know, my religious beliefs led me to just realize that, you know, my body was the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I anchored my religious accommodation on is that, you know, it, it was the temple of the Holy Spirit and it, it wasn't mine to pervert or to uh, pollute. And, um, you know, reflecting back in the more secular fashions, like I realized, like I, I've been pumped full of all sorts of vaccines and, you know, and some of them were starting to really affect me towards the end of my career, like anthrax. I think I was on dose six or seven of anthrax and it was really starting to affect me. And so it was kind of an easy thing, especially as my faith was growing to realize, you know, hey, maybe I was wrong. There's all these things that I've been doing harmful to my body, and I don't believe in this, not only from a secular medical uh, standpoint, but also from a religious standpoint. So there's no reason why I shouldn't be some in a religious accommodation. Um, and so I did. And, uh, and and I think that's everybody's right, even as a human. You know, it's your body. It, you should have the control, the autonomy over your body, and that, that's a freedom that's protected in America. Mm -hmm. Freedom of religious freedom, freedom of, of of your bodily autonomy. So even if you don't have a religious sect, you could just be an atheist. Like that, that is your right to put things into your body and choose what goes into them. So, um, and that kind of leads me into the government. There, they have programs in place. So the Religious Freedoms Restoration Acts allows for the government. Um, it says the government shall not substantially burden pers persons to exercise their religion. Assuming that that, you know, religious accommodation doesn't impede the government's mission. And, you know, from what we realized is, you know, as time went on, and it was early on they knew this, even though they wouldn't publicly state it, that, you know, the vaccine wasn't protecting anybody from, you know, getting the virus or, or transmitting the virus. And um, so, um, you know, in August of 2021, so just before the mandates, I actually got uh, COVID. And so I immediately, one of my first things I did was a medical exemption based off of that immunity I'd gained from the from the disease. And we have policies, and I knew this as a medical professional, that allow for you to do serologic testing, and they allow for you to divert vaccination based off of different things. You know, it's very it's very typical. So we screen all service members for uh, a litany of different diseases when they come in. And then instead of giving them that vaccination, you defer them based off of serologic immunity. Um, and there's even simple things uh, that, you know. So just uh, talk explain about. that a little bit. Yeah. Say serological immunity, you're able to identify that they're immune to certain things. Is that correct? Yeah. So you can go in just like a, you you go into the medical uh, or you could say if you're trying to get tetanus, mm -hmm. you're like, hey, we need to see if this person still has antibodies against tetanus. They can go and they could do serologic testing and say, hey, yep, your body still has these uh, these protective antibodies floating around for tetanus specifically. Or it could be hepatitis. Um, you know, it could be measles, it could be mumps, rubella, all those things. If you've had those vaccinations, you should have those, or if you had those diseases even, you should have those antibodies that protect you against them. And that's what came with uh, COVID. I got serologic testing done, 
and it showed that I still had, you know, protective amounts of uh, antibodies against COVID. And so we have these policies in place that tell you to defer those people if they have serologic immunity. They actually encourage you to do that. They say, we, you should defer them to avoid superfluous vaccinations. So they do not want to over-vaccinate people because that's when you cause, you know, uh, um, anaphylaxis, things like that, or you cause a, a, an excessive uh, sensation to a certain disease. Um, yeah, we weren't doing that with this. Not even, and we actually even have coding that allows you to temporarily do it. Hey, we're going to code these people saying they have serologic immunity because we don't know enough about the disease. We're going to do it temporary. Temporarily, when the research comes out, we'll go back and we'll decide if we should uncode the people and vaccinate them or what we're going to do with it. That was never even discussed. It was never even discussed. So, um, one thing that I wanted to go, so the, as part of my defense here, I went through uh, the all the researchers out there and the Brownstone Institute did a really good job at compiling all the, the information on natural immunity. And I ended up reviewing 150 research papers. It compiled, it was over 1600 contributors, you know, doctors, scientists, statisticians, researchers. And it was like 2,300 pages, over 2,300 pages of research. And they were all saying the same thing that disease causes a, a proper immune response and protects you from further infection. Um, and it, it just, it really um, kind of blew my mind that we were just ignoring that. Even more than that, I used to follow the medical intel uh, updates for the Navy and Marine Corps. And it's a monthly like medical intelligence letter and before the vaccination, these updates, these uh, medical reports, and I quote, they say that the T cells found in COVID-19 patients bode well for long-term immunity. And the growing collection evidence, evidence suggests that T cells, CD4 and CD8, may provide the longest lasting immunity to COVID-19. And then even later, the Intel update said, we found evidence of post-infection immunity even at one year after infection, including both antibodies, fighting infection, proteins, T cells, and specialized, uh, specialized immune cells, which capture and kill viruses. Um, it kind of, you know, that was prior to the mandates, so they had this information out there. And then as soon as those mandates came, they switched their, they switched their narrative to say that the natural immunity wasn't sufficient enough. Um, and I was even part of a, a research, I actually enrolled in a trial study that went out of the Military Uniform Services uh, Medical Institute, and it was called EPIC study. And they were evaluating vaccinated, unvaccinated service members. And lo and behold, their own research, and this is, I think it was May of 22, they released this. Uh, it, it came out saying in that research that they found long lasting immunity uh, from the disease. and and that was sufficient, ample. And, and so it really just, it kind of amazed me that in the hopes to drive uh, vaccine uptake, they kind of suppressed all this other information um, and they didn't even talk about it. It was never a discussion. You would think that it should have been a discussion. You would think that there should have been some sort of transparency, like, hey, we know that this could, uh, provide protection. However, this is why we're doing it. And, th and that wasn't the case. Um, Chief, let me ask you something real quick, because you mentioned yeah. early on Seaburn, chemical, biological, radiation, and nuclear. 
and you had all those protocols underneath you, which are not insignificant, especially at your level. My understanding of Seaburn is much of this is done to empower your level of operation while there's some strategic positioning made, but overall it's the idea to protecting the force and to using that feedback to developing a broader response. I, and I, that's what I'm hearing in all of this is none of that worked. What I'm saying is you did your work in protecting the force, but there was no uplift for the, the information, to, like your observations, like we're over, our response doesn't meet the, the threat. None of that was being listened to from the top echelons down. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. I mean, it's like every military a after action, you know, where does everything fail? And it's always communication, you know, <laughs> whether it's communication up the chain of command or communication down the chain of command, there was no proper communication. They weren't communicating down, telling us what was going on. And when we were communicating up, they weren't listening. And I mean, it, as, as it went, so, and I'll talk more about the uh, kind of my last deployment so I deployed in 2022 as an unvaccinated service member to the border. Um, great deployment. Honestly, we should be down there more often. That's a whole different story. But we were down there doing reconnaissance in support of Customs Border Patrol for counter-narcotics and their drug trafficking operations. I was down for the two months supporting that JTF North uh, position uh, operation. As soon as I got back, they released a policy that said that I was no longer allowed to travel and support operations on behalf of the DOD as an unvaccinated service member and completely ignored the fact that both, you know, vaccinated and unvaccinated members can spread uh, COVID. So I was told to, to stay local to the command area. I was allowed to take leave, but I couldn't travel officially, which also blows my mind because like, well, I can spread it while I'm on leave too, but okay. <laughs> and I, truly believe that this this you know ignoring the natural immunity and keeping with this narrative that you're not safe unless you get vaccinated and then couple that with some of these policy changes that really demonize service members that weren't getting the vaccine it was it was an attempt to marginalize the the religious service member hamper their promotions discourage their reenlistments and really psychologically demoralize those service members with the religious accommodation requests and I think, you know, it does this irreparable damage to the baseline moral of the force by by removing service members that have these religious convictions, you know, and it's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of like our founding fathers, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what does John Adams say? I actually wrote it here for me so that the our Constitution was made for only a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And that was by John Adams, you know, it's it's that moral baseline of the force that made us who we are. It's a moral baseline that makes the military who they are. It's a moral baseline in our nation that makes it what it is. It makes the Constitution what it is. And people are like, well, John Adams or our founding fathers were a bunch of slave owners. I don't trust what they say. OK, well, let's take somebody a little bit more recent, somebody who we cherished, a president we cherished, you know, Ronald Reagan. Freedom prospers, prospers when religion is vibrant. And the rule of law is under God is acknowledged, you know, and, and it's the same thing. We start expunging these service members, marginalizing them. They have religious convictions and uh, we've changed the whole face of the force because of it. And, you know, at least that's. I think you're onto something, especially when we start to see this replacement strategy that's going on right now. When we're trying to get 
the illegal aliens giving him a fast track to citizenship by enrolling into the military. That's the latest game, right? Unvaccinated, by the way. Um, yeah. And so I, I agree with you. I think this, what you really described here in the the attack on the religious service members in particular is a purge. And that's by any other name, name. If it would, if we'd been in a communist country or be looking at this from the lens of somebody who was in a totalitarian communist world, we would refer to this as a purge. Instead, we're, able, we're able to kind of mask this, not you, but I'm saying that DOD is able to mask this and try to justify this by policy, but it was, it was a purge is what we see. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, and I'm going to give some anecdotes of things that happen that kind of further highlight the disparity or the the lack of, of common sense in the matter. So May of 2022, I was told I can't travel any longer because I'm unvaccinated. So real quick just here, month, just, just real quick, sorry, but you also said that the study of proving soldiers had the immunity worked with COVID, um, the development of antibody immunities within the body, natural, natural immunity. Oh, it did. It, it came yep. out at the it, same month, right? It did. Yep. Okay. Yep. Same, same time. So, and actually, what's well, actually they didn't release it. Uh, I'll, I'll find it in my notes, but it was funny the way they released it. They like held on to it before they released it. You know, it's like this, the the newsletter was dated for like May of 2022, I think. And then they like held on to it before they released it to the the, the participants of the study. And so <laughs> and then the final re release of the research wasn't done until like a year after that fact. So it's like I was a trial participant. I had like a newsletter update. And mm -hmm. then the final research was like a year after. Oh, my goodness. Um, so. No, see, so one month prior to me being locked down, basically said that I can't go anywhere. April of 2022, the judge ruled to force the military to allow HIV service members to deploy. So, and it just, for me, it's like, okay, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, whatever you want to call it, a completely recoverable disease is less duty and limited, limiting and permanent than being permanently infected with HIV. So like the disparity between the two diseases, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I can recover from SARS, COVID-2, COVID-19, but it's like I can't recover from HIV. I can spread HIV. You know, I can recover from COVID and then not spread it. And it, and it just, none of it made sense. The logic wasn't there. Um, and, and, you know, despite echoing this up, the chain of command, despite them being in these lawsuits, you know, with the HIV and everything like that, they they weren't, their policies didn't match you know, it was very uh, just uh, just damning on their behalf. So um, I was hoping to get in today to kind of talk about some of my anecdotes and things I saw with adverse. Yeah, effects. please. And, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So really, most of this, uh, I think the people that have done best at, at recounting this is like Lieutenant Colonel uh, Teresa Long, Lieutenant Colonel Pete Chambers. Dr. McCullough, Ryan Cole, there's lots of experts that have great accounts of this. So minor, just anecdotal within my small clinic set, within my operating environment, within the base, things that people, you know, once people learn my position, they would start talking to me. You know, we're talking like these, you know, conversations and behind closed doors in my office or in a provider's office, things like that. Um, but I'll say this just to start off is that, you know, I've prior to the mandates, I've seen mild adverse reactions, but it was it was like, hey, I don't feel well or my arm hurts, 
never had I ever seen at severe adverse reactions. They were all mild. <laughs> and when I talk about severe adverse reactions with COVID is it was guys saying that they thought their hearts were going to explode. They felt like they had complete rhabdo of their whole body. Um, and, you know, and this was the warning signals were there, right? So the bears data is the DOD's primary source for tracking adverse in, uh, injuries. And it matched the EU's same system it all was showing harm from the vaccine. And I, I it still just blows my mind. It's like, you, you can't make sense of it. Why weren't we talking this? But like, you know, like I got a call from uh, a young Marine who within a few weeks had testicular pain, un, uncontrolled testicular pain within a few weeks of getting the vaccination and had to have his testicles removed or a testicle removed. Wow. Um, you know, I was uh, had a relationship with a base ophthalmologist. I was getting treated by him, and he kind of um, was in support of the vaccine. And that you know, the first appointment I had with him, and I kind of just mind my p's and q's, not wanting to engage. You know, sometimes it's easier just to just to get on with it. You know, because you want to get your 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 appointment over with. In subsequent appointments with this guy, I kind of opened up the door, kind of told him, like, hey, sir, like, you know, just so you know, I, you know, I've chosen not to get the vaccine and I'm, this is what I'm going through. And he said, well, interesting thing. He's like, I've I've started to see some of my own adverse reactions with the vaccine as well. And I'm starting to question its its safety. And um, he pr proceeded to tell me about cases of optic neuritis with his, his uh, patients. And, you know, some one of them resulted in complete blindness. And then he described to me also within the hospital a patient that died the same day as vaccination um, from cerebral thrombosis. And they tried, they passed the member's death as being associated to uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome. And, um, you know, I tried getting this ophthalmologist to go public with with his stuff. And, and ultimately what he came down and said, was like, Hey, I'm not tenured yet. They'll, they'll crucify me there. You know, they'll, I'll lose my pension. I'll lose everything. Um, you know, another service member I got in touch with was a, a Navy diver, um, master diver. And he, um, within five days of vaccination, it started with just mental fog and tinnitus and it progressed into multiple seizure events. And the service member, you know, was in phenomenal shape prior to the vaccination, you know, the epitome of health. And here he is being medically separated and forced to retire because of the vaccination, never to be talked of, you know. Um, I, I learned at the local hospital, base hospitals, that they were four weeks backlogged um, in January of 22. So just a few months after we started pushing the mandates, you know, right at the time when all the, so I think, Forget when the deadline was. It was probably December was the deadline, January, for you had to be vaccinated by or you or have a religious accommodation pending. There were four weeks backlog due to a surge in cardiac patients in January of 2022. Once again, the same clinic, same hospital. Um, September of 22 was nine months backlogged in uploading uh, their reports to their system because they had so much to process. And... Uh, <laughs> And this is a you know one of the primary medical facilities for the Marine Corps, and it just kind of you know they serve forty thousand personnel, and you know here they are telling me they have cardiac cases that they can't handle, and they can't they can't keep up with, um, you know so you know other service members come to me about uh, 
difficult uh, menstruation, so menstrual periods, like, you know, in both in the unvaccinated, so from shedding, uh, I had that being accounted to me, and then also from the direct vaccination, they were having abnormal uh, menstruation with with vaccination, uh, color blindness, seizures, serial uh, shingles outbreaks. And uh, I think one of the things that really, like, alarmed me is that I was also hearing reports of doctors being told not to uh, put these into VIRS. And I can personally attest to this because I had one of my uh, medics. He, uh, two weeks after vaccination, he had, uh, he blacked out. He just had complete syncope event. He was out running, blacked out, doesn't remember a thing. Also had some cardiac issues. Um, he told me his resting heart rate was like 170 is what it was. Wow. Yeah. And so within four weeks of the vaccination, he had a shingles outbreak across his eyes, across his face and around his head. And um, I brought my young doctor and I said, hey, sir, don't you think we should be doing a Veers report uh, for this? And he said, well, what do you mean? It's not associated. I said, what do you mean it's not associated? Guy has been through some of the hardest training, you know, the Marine Corps has to offer and deployed multiple times, no issues, and he gets vaccinated. And then two weeks later, he blacks out, doesn't remember a thing. A couple weeks later than that, he has a shingles outbreak. He's never had shingles before in his life. And then, you know, he's got all these issues going on with his heart, you know, resting heart rate of 170. What do you mean you can't record this or we shouldn't be recording this? And it was like, it was almost he the blissful ignorance he wanted to be blissfully ignorant on the matter because when i framed it like that he's like huh i guess maybe so you know it's like i i don't understand you're like you're the doctor you should be the one that's picking up on this you know i think this uh, is one of the things we struggle with so much chief is that um there is this line of I, ignorance is a wonderful term i i mean it's it's and it's self-imposed and yet right before them are the facts. So when there's this line, I know that people feel it. It's like, where is that line of criminality? Because complicit and not doing your job. I mean, this is this is a huge deal. And this is where we found this through the entire... It's just unbelievable to me how this ripple effect, once it started down, everybody just wanted to be part of the problem, not step away and ask the questions like you were doing. Like, why don't we just observe for a moment, right? Yeah, I, I just pray that the pendulum is swinging the other way that people are like, Oh, Hey, look, we're, we're going to be part of the solution now. Like this mm -hmm. is too overwhelming to say that it was nothing, you know, and that, that's really what I, I hope for. But, you know, and, and back to the injuries is, is there was a grassroots effort and some of our service members that were submitting these religious accommodations to, to find all these vaccine injured service members and get their stories written and get them into Congress. And so there was, there was 80 cases uh, that were totaled and they were formed and penned into a, a proper paper. And these case reports, I'm just going to read a couple of them. Um, and I can't take credit for this work. And I, I, the person that wrote this, is, his name is, is, is not on the top of my head right now. But, uh, you know, case 101, uh, pilot. Hospitalized 12 hours after vaccination, diagnosed pericarditis and anaphylaxis. Case 102, uh, infantry officer diagnosed with pericarditis. Case 103, uh, unit commander uh, 06, developed autoimmune disorder and hospitalized 72 hours after vaccination. Case 104, uh, helicopter pilot 05, 
cardiac and respiratory issues, uh, such as shortness of breath, chest pain, blurred vision, faintness, and heart palpations. Um, and I don't know, like what I said earlier, it's just like whether it was the, the pride of doctors, maybe the arrogance, the hubris, something is causing doctors to ignore what's going on. And if you've ever looked at the the history of medicine, physicians were like a subservient class, you know, way back in, in you know, ancient times. And they kind of rose to this level of, you know, you can't touch them, you mm-hmm. know, where they're, they're elitist really in their own regard. And, and if you've ever talked to, you know, some doctors, you feel like that, you feel like you're talked down. Actually, it's, it's actually a tact that physicians use. They use very big vocabulary, very intelligent intellectual vocabulary to instill confidence in their patients and guide them through their healthcare. It's a, you know, patient guided care. And there's a lot of discussion on it and, 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 the educational process of how you guide patients to see the treatment pathway you want them and to settle them on it. And a lot of it has to do with the use kind of the condescending uh, vocabulary and, uh, and the way that you talk to people. And, and um, you know, I think that's where the term, well, I'm not a doctor comes from, you know, it's like, well, I don't know that term. That's a whole different meaning to me now, (laughs) to be honest. So uh, might, might actually value your opinion more at this point. So, but, um, (laughs) Um, so as time progressed, you know, I religious accommodation, I did a medical exemption. Um, I entered a trial study. Um, I did some informal conversations with folks. Um, there was at one point, uh, there was a, an admiral who, I think he was the senior medical, uh, phys- uh, provider for the Marine Corps wrote a declaration of fact, and it was kind of a, it was his declaration to a fact to give commanders the authority to like leverage it against uh, officers and service members in the boards of inquiry. And so he did a declaration of fact. So I actually did a response to his declaration of fact to refute it. Um, knowing what I knew about affidavits, knowing there had to be some sort of uh, response to it to kind of refute it. And so I wrote one of those, but it, it kind of it blew my mind that so they, there was a lot of uh, aggression in his declaration towards like, hey, you must get vaccinated or, you know, or people are going to die or it, the service member will die if they're not unvaccinated. But what I realized, so I used to, like I said, I used to analyze these uh, medical reports that were coming in every month and they would give the the running total of vaccinated, unvaccinated deaths, hospitalizations, uh, cases. And in that information alone, I started looking at it and analyzing it. There was, and the definitions of vaccinated versus unvaccinated had to deal with that 14-day period and things like that. And I actually found where they had a death in the vaccinated, and then the next month they lumped it in with unvaccinated group of people. And so they were shifting the definitions as they were going through these things month by month. And it was really creating a, a conundrum as far as like, you know, how could a commander make a decision off of something that's a moving target? You know, if you're shifting the vaccinations, uh, you know, like at one point unvaccinated became not fully immunized and then became unimmunized. And every time they would add the totals to the unvaccinated group. Um, and it, it's hard to see if you guys weren't in the nuance. It's very nuanced data to look through. I think a lot of people actually have seen to- 
What's interesting too yeah, is I think a lot of people have seen this. I mean, um, thanks to a lot of the work by Dr. Sherry Tenpenny as one who was able to bring forth a lot of the data manipulation. And we saw others as well um, in there. Dr. Kerry Madej, Dr. Lee Merritt, who's actually signed on to this. And I, and I agree with you. I think one of the things that, so I'm, what you're validating here is a huge thing. I'm not, I'm not minimizing what you're saying. You're validating. And I think what's eye-opening for me are the number of cases in, in the ranks that have never been discussed. I mean, this is, you're, you're listing, uh, you just went through a range of people from pilot to infantryman to company commander or, or however that rank was, but essentially the, the positions, tremendous amount of coverage of the span of leadership and soldier integrity and strength in our force. And they're all being hit, which is now really looking into a deeper dilemma and issue, which is force readiness, which has severely been compromised. I think greater than most people realize. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, and, and that's what it came down to that all this information was talking about force readiness, but the data wasn't supporting it, but the narrative was, you know, the narrative they were pushing was supporting, well, this is for force readiness, but, you know, towards the end of some of this, this stuff, you know, before they stopped tracking it, I, uh, January to April, 2022, I actually noted in their stuff that they, more people that were, more boosted personnel caught SARS-CoV-2 and were hospitalized than the unvaccinated or the, just the single uh, dosed uh, personnel. And so the, the boosters were, it was actually showing, and this was part of what had me so up at arms and forced me into the whistleblower status and the right in the affidavit is that the boosters were accounting for more hospitalized and cases of, of COVID. And, and, and it just, you know, it's like, why, why I'm not, this is not my job. You know, anybody can look at this data, you know, and I'm not the one that's assigned to look at this data. I'm a chronist fan, which I guess maybe that's why I looked at it. Maybe that, maybe that is my job. I look for the hidden things. I'm, I'm really trying to, I was trying to get to the core leadership. Um, and what's happened to us. I mean, I saw some of this in 2006 in an unexpected way. Uh, general Pritt was a, a general I worked with very closely. National Guard general asked me to go down and take a look at a base over Herat. And I spent some time over there and they were, had a new medical facility opening up. And, it, and I, I'm just hearing echoes of what you're talking about right here. It was not ready. And so the general was coming in and everybody, all the colonels and, and in particular wanted to make a big show of it. So they literally bust in newly trained, they weren't even finished their training, just bodies from the Afghan military academy in Kabul, they bust them in and flew them in and put them into stations and invited in a bunch of people from the village to come in and be busy at this medical clinic so that it looked like it was operational. So when Pritt comes in, they put on this big dog and pony show and he drives away congratulating them. I flew up to Kabul about two weeks later and he said, so what did you think? I said, I, what you need is some more battle captains. I said, you were just lied to. And I remember him looking at me and said, what? And I said, that whole show you just saw, they put a padlock on the building the day after you left. And he was in, enraged. He said, I told my officers, that, and this was the big line, that their OERs, which is their assessment for those people that don't know, would not be used on them for this deployment. I wanted them to do the right thing. It, it's just sick. It's, uh, it's, 
it's the culture of the military now. You know, you and I talked about this previously. You go into a commander's update brief and you have, you know, all the commanders for the different platoons and companies around the table. And they're going through a slideshow Rolodex for each company. And there's a series of columns and check marks for all the different training they're supposed to be doing. And what the commander expects to see is green across the board, or maybe not. But what the individual commander, you know, company platoon commanders, they're like, they're trying to do whatever they can to make it green, even if it's not green. Mm-hmm. They're gun decking, you know, accountability on stuff. They're gun decking trainings. Like the guy actually didn't train it. He just clicked through the PowerPoint, you know, but at the end of the day, what every commander is doing, hey, sir, we're green across the board. And and that's the culture of the military. They They would rather save face by hiding the truth than then be tell the truth and be like hey sir we're not ready we're not prepared or what we did was wrong sir we've messed up the boosters causing more harm than good they can't backtrack from it and and i i believe this a lot too because it's a balance that i had to do as a a senior enlisted provider to a special operations commander my job was to inform him so they can make operational decisions inform him on medical to make operational decisions the paradigm of medical hierarchy, medical was given a massive amount of power in this to the point where commanders, because they don't know medicine, they're told to default to their medical advisor. And so that's what commanders had to do. And that's what a lot of people, I think, in the military, you know, senior surgeon for, you know, surgeon general of the Navy, what do you recommend we do? And they had to go with it because that's the way we've conditioned our military leadership is to go with the advice of the commander. And, um, you know, it's all part of the same problem. Green is good, check marks across the board, smoke and mirrors, all of that. What do you see, and with all that you've gone through, what do you see it's going to take to get this thing back on track? I mean, our military right now, from the entire ideological operational framework, from top to bottom, is corrupted. This would never have happened in a military where... And I'll just take World War II, for example. I love the scene in Saving Private Ryan. And I love it because there you have, as he comes off the beach of Normandy, Tom Hanks is paying the captain, is now talking to an 06. And the 06 is telling him, asking him what's going on. And he's laying out like the real, like this is what's going on. And the 06 is like, good, I'm taking it. And that's going to be real information. There's no, he's not questioning, he's asking him questions, but it's not like, uh, we're going to ignore you. It's real. We've seen a real interesting class of officers that step into this whole time, which is the 05 class, which is interestingly in this political melee of our military. They're that group of people that usually aren't going to seek any more of the higher ranking of ladder jumping. They have their eyes, which you wouldn't expect them to be really on the heart of the soldier. They've kind of become our new 03 captains, if you will. What do you see is going to have to happen in our military to really get it back to that place of having that integrity and that honesty. And it's like doing the right thing, not doing the thing that's going to appease your commander. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's tough. I, I struggle with this uh, because it's pretty easy to say, well, we just need a reset of morals. Uh, we need to get back to moral based decisions. We need to actually mean what we say when we say, Hey, we're going to trust, but verify, verify, or if you see something, you say something. Those are all the cliche things that we've always told ourselves within the military to do. But honestly, I think it's bigger than the military. Um, I think it has to do with the societal construct. You know, we've been told since uh, 
since we're children, or probably our generationally, we've been told, hey, you need to get an education, get a degree, you know, secure your livelihood uh, with a 401k, things like that. None of those are moral-based uh, objectives for life. Those are all financial-based objectives for life. And, you know, we're, we're sold on this rat race mentality, and it's propagated by, uh, in my opinion, it's propagated by advertising and all the large uh, media platforms, social media, things like that, the algorithms, and now the AI. It's all propagating the same mentality because that's what makes money. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a crony capitalism at its finest, and it's being weaponized against the people. And so I think people got to get back to some sort of moral-based construct for life rather than a financial-based construct where, hey, I need to secure this massive pension. Because what happened in the military is as soon as people were attacked, their morals took a baseline, a backseat to their pension. Mm. So instead of being like, hey, you know what, it, it's more important for me to have a moral, a moral uh, high road on this. You know, they didn't say that. They they were more worried about saving their pension because that's what we've been selling the lie of is that it's important for them to have that pension, secure that livelihood for the families, um, and defend that livelihood at all cost. And it creates a bunch of sheep, is what it creates. Yeah, we creates a bunch of useful idiots. You know, people that are were you know, I don't know, ignorantly blissful idiots. I guess is is, is what it'd be. Uh, yeah, so, wait, till, wait till they find out that all their pensions were robbed and raped from 2008 on. That's going to make them really happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This I've I've actually been trying to to tell people be like, hey, it's not a retirement; it's actually a retainer. So there's, <laughs> there's you know, who knows what that actually means? Like, let's get into the details of what a retainer in the military means. Yeah. Does that mean they can take it away? Does that mean I have to? I owe them something if they ever call on me. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, so it's created a bunch of people that are complacent, people that are are, are comfortable with being comfortable. Um, you know, they're making comfort-based decisions, right and left, and it's all based around that that future uh, 401k and retirement goal. And um, so, you know, hopefully that answers your question. I, I think it's bigger than just the military. I think it's a societal change that has to happen. So, you and I agree on that. I mean, talk about it all the time. We can win every battle. We'll lose the war if we don't see a moral shift in this nation. And it has to Amen. be, it really does. So Chief, after Amen. you went, you've gone through this and um, I mean, I'm, you probably have some more cases you want to share, but I just want to kind of get a framing of where this has led you because you're, you, you weren't forced out in the end, right? No, I wasn't. Uh, you know, like I said, I don't know if it was my, the fact that I was a senior medical professional, uh, if I was special operations guy, maybe I speak well, maybe people don't want to come at me. I have no idea. But command or, was or maybe God. Yeah, maybe God protected me, you know, and yeah. so that way I could be here today talking about this. I mean, it, it didn't, it wasn't comfortable, but, you know, so command was great about it. They were in behind closed doors, support me. Um, I think even a couple of them are getting out because of the things that I wrote, these affidavits and things like that. And after they read it, their eyes were open, um, but still they're not speaking up. But what, you know, for me, what, what was it? kind of forced me down this rabbit hole is what other people were telling me and the, the subtle things they were saying to me, you know, like there was times when I had, you know, my peers or my boss, you know, ask me things like, you know, are you sure this is a hill you want to die on? Um, I even had, I did have my, you know, my faith 
questioned multiple times, being like, I understand you think this violates your beliefs, but this isn't the hill to die on. Like that hill to die on thing really like got under my my skin because it's like, well, what is the hill to die on? And how are we, why are we using this as an analogy to combat? You know, we're talking about a vaccine. We're not talking about a tyrannical, uh, you know, a war that has maybe some sort of virtue or some sort of tyrannical government we're trying to, trying to, you know, combat. Um, you know, so, um, but what I think was most harmful, and this Marine said it best, um, and he said, if someone wants the real lawsuit against the Department of Defense, the young Marines that were uninformed and pressured is where to start. He personally witnessed hundreds who were leaned into hard and straight misinformed of the religious accommodation options. And by being told this is life or death, you have no choice, go to medical or face separation. Um, if you don't get the vaccine, I don't trust your decision making. This is what the young service members were told during this process. And I think that's the most damning thing of it is because most of the force is made up of young service members and they were leaning into the hardest. And then on the back end, you don't hear it because those young service members, they don't have an education. They don't feel like they have a platform to talk on. Um, they don't have the confidence to talk on it. Maybe maybe they leave service and they're kicked out. I actually met several in Idaho this last summer. They just got kicked out and they just kind of uh, let the pain, you know, uh, go away and they just moved on with their lives. And it's like, man, we, we missed the mark, really missed the mark. We kicked all these people out and they have no pride in their nation anymore. And they have an extreme distrust for the military, and uh, they will never encourage their children to go in the military because of what happened to them. I agree with that. that. Well, unfortunately, even for myself, there was a pretty good phase. It has nothing to do with the 231. But I've said the same thing. We need to be very cautious about going in now because our, it's, it's the senior leadership that we have to be most concerned about. They're not steering this military in the right direction. And what they're doing is what we're witnessing over and over is they have, too many of them have taken the promises of being a CEO for somebody or being on the board of directors or somebody. And that's the big one. That's a racket beyond rackets, by the way. You ever want to see what they get paid to get on being on somebody's board? They don't have to do anything. They just need to show up. They just want their name on the board. So, oh, yeah. you know, they'll make, you know, they'll make anywhere from ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year or more just to put their name on somebody's board. And that, that requires you know, maybe at most four visits a year. Wow. Right. And wow. so the, and yeah. so what you'll see is you'll see these guys that'll do multiple boards and they're, and depending on who they are, it can be extremely, uh, an extreme amount of money, six figures level. And I, I can tell you this firsthand because it was literally part of the discussions, which I rejected when I had my de defense company. It's like, Hey, you want to make yours really grow? You need to get general such and such or something like that on here. And here's what it's going to cost you. And I'm like, no, we don't do that. And under the guise of uh, private public, public partnerships, right? Right. And helping build, you know, specialty and advisement of this or that. You give them a nice title. Which, if we let's be real about what that means, that's that's fascism. You know, it a, is a private organization doing the the behest at the best working at the behest of the government. That's it's dangerous stuff. You know, this, and, this uh, private public partnership nonsense came out of the State Department, which is just the front for the CIA anyway. And it's just, it is, that is what has brought this into the mainstream of our discussion these days. And we hear it all the time and it's become this kind of this common term. And, and this is the irony is that 
you know, when you, I roll back to, I, I've told you this briefing, I've told it here a number of times, that when you're looking at this back in 2012 when we were looking at this, that was the looming threat. You can see it. It's like, this isn't right. You don't start bringing these, these authorities together because it allows them to circumvent everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. You know, and I guess I'll just wrap up the rest of my story and we'll talk a little bit more about the uh, Declaration of Military Accountability. But the um, so my story kind of ended when, you know, I submitted that I spoke at a vaccine conference in Idaho, kind of got this whistleblower, pseudo whistleblower protection, realized I needed to put an affidavit in to try to stop the boosters at the unit that I was at, um, covered about 20,000 personnel. That doctor is now the moved up in the hierarchy and he's now in charge of about 40,000 personnel. Um, but I issued him this affidavit. He's, he's a friend of mine, uh, or was a friend of mine, I guess. Um, <laughs> so he, after I issued this to him, uh, the staff judge advocates, so the, the lawyers for the command basically put a gag order on him and told him not to talk to me anymore. Uh, do not engage senior chief Brown about the matter. Um, so all communication with chain of command stopped at that point. Um, and so, you know, within a month or so of these vaccine speaking conferences and this affidavit, I found out the deputy surgeon general in the Navy was coming to, to the base and he wanted to speak to all the medical personnel in a town hall setting. And so two to 400 medical personnel showed up this auditorium and I prepared, you know, what I was going to say and what I was going to ask. And I kind of kvassed uh, the, uh, the group to figure out you know, what kind of questions do we want to ask? So I got 60-ish questions from concerned service members and just kind of just asked them. I raised my hand, uh, was in a good position where he could see that senior chief was one to ask a question. And uh, so he answers on, you know, the recon guy with shiny medals on his chest and, oh, senior chief, what, do you, what would you like to ask me? You know, sir, why are we continuing with these mandates? We know the vaccines aren't effective. There's a good chance they're not safe. Um, any claim to efficacy could be just the variant decreasing over time. You know, I was trying to be very, meet him in his secular medical mind. And uh, he asked me to, he, you know, sit down unless I had further questions. So him, I ended up standing and we went back and forth about five times in this, you know, for five or so minutes back and forth in front of all these people. And, uh, you know, he just bureaucratic the whole thing. He tried to put some stuff out there to to intimidate me, and I just came back with the DMED data and things like that, which, you know, God bless the people that are still looking in the DMED data because it's still showing tons of harm. And I, I hope the listening audience understands what the DMED data is. It's a it's a database the military uses to, to show red flags. So it's all the diagnoses service members get, they go into this database, and so myocarditis, you know, and they could look in this database and see how many cases of myocarditis there were in the DOD in 2021. And, you know, you can compare it to years prior. And so it's a very powerful tool. And we really ignored those red flags in that database. So I asked him about that. And he, well, I haven't seen that data. And um, right after the meeting, you know, we went back and forth. He came up to me and I gave him a stack of paperwork, which is my affidavit, these questions from concerned service members, and uh, a bunch of DMED data as well. And so I know that the Surgeon General of the Navy got all that information he had to have because the back row was full of admirals. It, you know, the whole staff saw what I did, and uh, I was not a popular uh, senior chief for, 
from then on. What I do want to speak to real quick, just to put this in context, because as senior chief, you have a tremendous amount of power in that place because you are really supposed to be advocate for the soldier, correct? So, I mean, that's that's a fact. Actually, the, the command master chief came up to me afterwards or called me. What the hell are you doing? And uh, he said, yeah, that forum is not for you. That's for the junior enlisted. And I said, are you are you serious? I was like, you would expect a junior enlisted service member to ask Admiral that question. Well, that's your personal belief. Don't don't put your thoughts and perceptions on everybody else. And I said, no, it's not. I've had these junior guys coming to me saying these things. It is their questions. It is their concerns. And uh, and then I proceeded to tell him, I, there is no policy that says that I have to softball pitch the admiral in a town hall. There's no guiding policy on that. And, uh, you know, they love it when you weaponize policy against them because they can't say anything. So, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. And uh, so that was kind of how that way that that really, like, ushered me out, you know, into the, into, into the pasture. Um, <laughs> and, you know, shortly after that is when the 2023 NDAA um, repealed the mandates for the DOD. And I, I think if that wouldn't have happened, I think we would have had some tremendous wins in the courts because at that time, we had 40 lawsuits against the DOD. The major ones all had injunctions of some sort um, placed against the DOD. And as soon as the NDA passed with a you know, repeal of the COVID mandates, um, they, you know, I think the Department of Justice came around and they probably they lobbied the judges to drop all the cases for mootness. And so sure. most of the cases were all dropped for mootness. Um, but what is kind of astonishing in, in the case that I was involved in, which was the Liberty Council case, they were held, the DOD was held liable for the attorney fees. And I think that's an admittance that there was, DOD was at fault for what happened. Um, you know, and so I rested in the fact that the NDA passed, um, but I was not settled about what happened. And I think a lot of us weren't, but we really didn't know where to go from there. And I, I still didn't feel great about it. And uh, when, uh, Commander Rob Green and, and some of the other leaders in, in our organization uh, wrote the Declaration of Military Accountability. Um, it kind of re-sparked that fight in me. You know, I, I took about a year off um, to kind of regain my focus, and I barely caught being able to sign the, the declaration. I was actually the 231st signatory. I got it in minutes before he fired it off, <laughs> and I'm thankful, very yeah. thankful. So. Um, so if you ever hear me say I'm the 231st, I'm literally the 231st just by minutes. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, yeah, so, you know, and for everybody's probably heard it, but the Declaration of Military Accountability, it's a promise of 230 uh, either uh, past or current service members. It's our promise to the American people that we're going to hold the leaders within the DOD accountable for what happened um, in order to regain the trust and confidence um, in our military, because I think it's lacking right now. I think if you asked, you know, take a poll out there, and at least in the circles I run in, people are concerned about the state and the uh, and the morale of the military, the the um, readiness in the military, and it all stems from from situations like the COVID uh, debacle and and what happened in the military, and and you know I think the military leads the way in our nation as far as the uh, climate, you know we're supposed to be the the level even keeled uh, stalwarts of 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 the nation. We're not influenced by societal pressures up or down. We should be middle of the road and we should be a, a moral reflection of our constitution. And we've lost that um, through DEI, 
and other initiatives, we've really lost that. And, um, and, you know, and, and one thing which has got me a little concerned, and I'm glad to see corporations removing DI from some of their initiatives, is veterans were lumped into DI. And it, it, it puts veterans in a, in a position where they become professional veterans. If you go into an organization and you're working for, for Lowe's, for example, and you're wearing your veteran vest, you're now a, a protected class of person that uh, kind of rests on being a veteran. And it really, uh, I think it hamstrings you. It makes you a victim of, of the system. And you're forever known as a veteran that people almost feel sorry for, especially if you're you're injured. And it doesn't, it doesn't, you have something to offer this nation as a veteran, as a service member, you have something to offer society, even if you have any sort of disability. And I think to highlight it is actually almost uh, more of a disservice to the person. I tend to so, agree. Uh, I, a good buddy of mine would always do this and people would say, thank you for your service. And his comment would be, you want to thank me for my service, get active in your community and stand for what yeah. we fought for. You know, and I think that's a, a good rebound reflection. You've had a, a, a lot of stuff. I mean, you have a great story and you, you put a lot into this career. I want to highlight something here and just drive it home. That moment you had at that town hall, what you did for those soldiers, those 60 soldiers will change their life. And it's what was lacking the entire time to have the moral courage in our leadership of NCOs in particular that could stand up and say the right thing regardless and speak it to the officers and let those junior enlisted look at that and go, that's what I want to be. You did a great service, Chief. And I'm, I'm telling you, 60 lives were changed that day. And I think that's a tremendous thing. Yeah, you know what was kind of cool about that is I so I gave the paperwork to the the surgeon, and right afterwards there was about four or five service members that came up and shook my hand and thanked me, right there in front of everybody. And I was like, that's that's what I'm talking about. That, that, is, that was worth it right there. That was worth all the stress and pain. <laughs> that, that was that was good. That's what it's all so, about, right there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and people don't forget it either. Even I came you know, like a year after the fact. Somebody approached me and they're like, Hey, I remember when you uh confronted the surgeon general at the town hall that was pretty awesome like yeah we just great. we have just lacked that so much and it's so disappointing you know for me because the the strength of the american military across all services has always been its nco corps that is what has been the vibrancy of what made us so good that true adaptability the advising of senior officers to get them or their junior officers to get them to be better senior officers that nurturing culture that was there and the demands that were put upon the lower ranks to be you know stellar performers when our senior ncos fail to do their job i think that's a greater impact than when our officers fail to do their job and that's a, just a really sad statement of what's happened in this current environment yeah and it it was i mean it's been humbling right so I was all the way from one end of the spectrum to the other. Mm -hmm. So I had to go back to my commander, my senior enlisted advisor, uh, all the officers. I went back and I, I admitted to them that I was wrong and told them what I was doing. And, uh, it, you know, that, that actually one of them spoke at my retirement. I literally put this guy in quarantine for a month. <laughs> I mean, he's the biggest warrior I know. The biggest, he's literally the epitome of a warrior. And, uh, you know, the, the restraint it took him to to do that willingly. Well, he didn't really do it willingly, but the restraint it took him not to kill me. Uh, <laughs> and, but being able to go back and tell those guys that I made a mistake and what I was doing about it, I think uh, it's done a lot for me. And I think it's what people need to do. It's the courage 
the courage is contagious uh, mantra. You know, you got to kind of got to put that foot forward and you're going to see other people follow suit. People are going to hear it and they'll be like, you know what? Okay, I can do it. You know, it's just like uh, Commander Rob Green writing this letter and others signing this letter. I said, well, if Commander Rob Green can sign it. I can sign it, yep. you know. Um, so and, that, and that's that's where it was at. Um, and if, you know, the couple key points that I want to make sure everybody understands about the, the declaration is that it, it's a non-political, non-violent call to accountability. And um, we need help. We do need support. We can't do it on our own. It's not just this 231 service members. We're doing our best to to do that, but we can't do it without everybody's support. Um, and so we have the petition um, that you can find at militaryaccountability.net. And it's a petition for the people to support the 231 and their their efforts and their goal. And you can learn more about the information of, of the action items, the political candidates that are moving from our group into the political sphere to change some of these things and to regain our military and regain the trust and confidence in the American people. Um, and that's really what it's all about. So I would encourage everybody to get involved with that website and look at some of the resources there. Follow some of the key leaders in this movement, uh, Mark Bashaw and uh, Brad Miller. Uh, they're both amazing profiles in this to to watch and listen to and to kind of see what you can do to help. And like you said earlier, I think getting involved in your community, bringing it back, um, because through social media, we've really we've really turned the pyramid upside down, right? Yes, we have. We're all focused on we're focused on this high level. Uh, nationwide politics, and we're completely neglecting our communities. We're completely <laughs> neglecting our local politics, and we need to be standing for individual rights and freedoms, and and those things that that foster our American ideals in the local community, um, and not just getting sucked into our phones and social media feeds and national news because we already know that it's it's upside down right now unless you're you're getting the right sources. And you can never be too sure about what sources you're getting, especially if you're on on social media, because the algorithms are feeding you what they want you to feed you. Mm -hmm. So, no, it's good. Good word, Chief. Good word. So, what's for you next? So next, uh, well, I I uh, homesteading in Idaho is what's next. Uh, yesterday, I was a plumber. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm uh, hoping to be a HVAC uh, installer later today. Hopefully, putting in a fireplace. <laughs> So I just brought my family up in the middle of winter to Idaho, and uh, it's challenging to say the least. It was snowing this morning. So, uh, but yeah, that's the goal. You know, I, I really want to, I'm probably going to stay in the sphere of, of uh, I don't know if you want to call it activism. I kind of cringed that word, but freedom activism maybe is the, is the right thing. Um, I, I don't think that's ever going to change, but I really want to get back to my roots in the community um, and start building, doing residential building here and serving my local community as a paramedic on the volunteer ambulance and uh, just living a good life and uh, realizing that people need some sort of, uh, they need to be held accountable and they need to look at something that is a, a model of a, a godly Christian man. And I, I hope to be that, that model. God, God willing, I'll be that model for, for people here. That's awesome. That's, that's nothing better than that right there. That's good. Is there a website you want anybody to go to, uh, check out anything in particular? Yep. Yeah. Just to replug it, um, militaryaccountability.net and, uh, freedom fighters, 1776, uh, which is, uh, Mark Basha. I think that's also a great resource. There's lots of links in there to different things and initiatives and 
I think if you're plugged in with Brad Miller or Mark Bashaw, you're going to see uh, where this is headed mm-hmm. and see how you can get involved. Well, we always close with a prayer. If it's okay, I'll do a prayer. Amen, yes. Father God, I just want to thank you today for Senior Chief Dixon Brown who's been here today, just really just showing us a way forward, which anchors itself all in Holy Spirit. The power of faith, the power of getting through what seems to be impossible odds to step through things and to hold that line of truth and honesty and integrity to not only set the standard for others to see, but to literally bring that light of Christ into our world. And in so doing, to lift up and to challenge even the most pernicious evil to see what truth does, as we always know truth is victorious. Father, I ask for a blessing of, of and upon Senior Chief and his family and all that they need and all that they require. Continue to guide them in this amazing quest where the, his life has now become one of ministry in such a living way. And to just open up the doors that only you can open and bless them in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Absolute honor, man. Thank you. I, I think God God orchestrated that. That was great. Yeah, it was good. I really enjoyed I felt, it. That felt better. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> Much yeah, better. Thanks, man. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, gosh, let me know if there's anything I can do for you. Like I said before, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to reach out to since the Lord put it on my heart to to mention. Uh, Richard Mass to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love to have him I'm on. Let's see what their status is. Okay. He previously was trying to get me to help him uh, kind of counter some of this left-wing media that was attacking him mm-hmm. um, because they were afraid that the judges were going to get swayed by it because multiple the, the case had been handed off between judges multiple times. Mm-hmm. And it, they were afraid. I think CARE was involved. I don't know if you're familiar with yes. that nonprofit. Yeah. 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 It's nothing so, good. Nothing good. Yeah. Yeah, so they were involved with it, and they were trying to, they are basically suing them, trying to take this child back as some sort of like, I don't know, political agenda and media agenda, I don't know. And uh, so unfortunate people, they had this girl for, I think, four or five years at this point, and raised her. Basically, she was just a little little baby when they brought her over. She was a, what this child was, is she was this a surviving child from a, they, they raided this compound. And there were suicide bombers there. So she was a t- child of a terrorist that survived this raid. And they ended up taking her to the American hospitals and healing her and everything like that. And they were trying to figure out what to do with her. And uh, the brother to Richard Mast, uh, I forget his name, Mast, ended up adopting her and brought her back to the States during the Afghanistan withdrawal and then adopted her and had her in his own bird since then. And then the guardians, people claiming to be the guardians, which one of them was on the terror watch list, and you know, uh, claiming to be the guardians or blood relatives, but refusing to do DNA testing, sued the mass, saying that they had the rights to this child, but refused to do DNA testing, and said that they had rights to the child because they were relatives, and uh, so. I'd like to think on his face the case had no legs, but he was heavily concerned that they were going to sway the, uh, you know, the court of public opinion was going to sway the judge into ruling in favor of the. Of yeah. the, the only Muslims. thing they saw in that child was a, a dowry they were going to get from somebody. That was actually the discussion. There was a there was a, a dowry linked to to some someone out of Canada or something like that. Mm-hmm. There was something. These so, people. I swear, I just, I just shake my head. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just, and you know, and there's, we we have this real 
it's been always easy for us to look across the seas and see it. And we, unfortunately, we're finding it here. And, and, and that's our problem is that we've, we know how evil that is, but now we're discovering how rotted it is within our own walls. Right. And that's, yeah. Yeah. It's one of the big ones. Like the Another, judges. Uh, there shouldn't even organizations, be special operators. Have you heard of uh, Serapin? Yeah, I have heard of Serapin. Yeah. Okay. It, that just started up uh, this year, uh, an organization, and I'm kind of in their chat groups, I see. Um, it's Frankie. Uh, gosh, what's his last name? Anyways, a buddy. They're just kicking it off, hopefully, this year. And they're looking to go operational with it and kind of attack some of this child trafficking type stuff. Yeah, I'd love to talk to those guys, too. They're, they yeah. need to talk to, um, tell them to link up with Basel Boz. And if you get me, Who's I can it? make some bridges. This guy, well, besides the fact, my entire, I'm not kidding you, my entire two computers got nuked after I interviewed him. Not kidding. I mean, like, I could not get online for a week. I had to buy all new computers, that type of nuked. But um, he is a former clandestine guy from CIA and went through clandestine branch. He was in clandestine branch yeah. and um, discovered all this child sex trafficking and literally left his, as he said, my dream job. And he said, this can't happen. And so he fights, he's big in Idaho and he wants me to go up to Idaho with him. So you'll probably see us up there because I've got a project I've been working on called uh, Operation Vineyard, which is how to get counties involved in this. And um, he's, they're like no nonsense guys. They're, they're not just talkers. They're like working with local law enforcement, kicking in the doors and taking the bad guys out. So sort of guys. Oh yeah. I definitely, what, what's his name again? Basel Baz. I'll, um, let me see if I can get this. I'll send you a couple of links. Cause I, it was another one of those things I was reading the chat group, which I'm kind of quiet in this sons of Ishkar, but it's, uh, it's all these soft, soft operators that are Christians. We've all kind of gotten a group together to kind of pray for each other. And nice. Realize realize that we all have a, a piece in this. It's probably bigger than we each realize individually. Yeah, there it is. Basel Baz. He's, um, his organization, I'll find it here in a minute. Yeah, he's done a good job of like being a screenwriter and being on some other stuff, but his real deal, like he doesn't mess around. There he is. He's, he's it's human sex trafficking. So I'll find it for you. It's, his okay. site's kind of hard to find, intentionally hard to find, but um, good dude. And um, the real deal. And, <laughs> Like, I hate to say I have to validate it this way, but yeah, the real deal. Like when I was interviewing him, he's so censored that every time he said a key word, it would drop. I had, it took me two days to edit his audio to get it back. Yeah. And then we got it back to, it was a solid, a solid interview and that I played it. And the next morning I got up and I could not get online. I mean, I did, I went through a week of troubleshooting on my machines, my computers. I mean, as far as live, I could, I could post my stuff. But all my live access was destroyed. I mean, that's where we're headed, though, right? Yeah. If this AI can just can pick into keywords, pretty soon you go from one profile list to another. And the more you just escalate up. Oh, and I'm already. Soon you're, <clears throat> they, they've already got me on the one that says FEMA camp. I yeah. Well, so <laughs> I have a I have a buddy who is working for uh, Google, mm -hmm. and uh, he was there contracting, doing medical security. And he finally is like, I got to get out of here, man. He's like, I can't, I can't be a part of this anymore. I can't observe this anymore. I can't be a part of it. But he was explaining to me this prior to AI. So not that long ago, 
just how they were building lists and doing all these things. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, now AI is going to automate all that. They don't have to try it anymore. No, they just put it in the list. And then that's all this social credit score nonsense, right? Like that's the big yeah. thing about X. People are on it, but what they're not realizing is like that's the biggest honeypot ever. Seriously. I'm sure. Because what I'm they sure. did is they, they pushed off all the patriots and then the liberals got comfortable and then Musk takes it over so the patriots come back, even though ironically I'm, I'm back on their, in a new account, but they would never reactivate my account ever, which I laugh at because I was I did this, uh, it must have been like 500 times, but I did like these those evidentiary presentations on, on Twitter of how Jack, Jack Dorsey was a pedophile and I literally would have documents and stuff. So yeah. I, the last one I did, I remember I literally, they send you these canned letters, you know, like your, your account's been suspended. And I, man, I must've really gotten in deep because somebody wrote me a personal note and they're just like, wow. you have literally gone way beyond the limit of this. And all the, I started laughing. I'm like, wow, <laughs> like you really got a little dialed up on this one. So, okay, obviously. So anyway, but that, that's just created a massive honeypot because as people are now posting over there comfortably and getting back to doing all this stuff, they're just now pulling all that in and just like, okay, this is where you are. This is where you are. This is where you um, are, yeah. <clears throat> you know, yeah. and that's, you know, you, what you're talking about, like homesteading, which is what Jeremiah 616, ancient paths, one of my, I just, that's my living verse for everything I do. Yeah. And um, that's really where, you know, as we're out here doing what we're doing, my cattle and building up, I've got, um, I've got my home I bought from my parents. It was their home. They're there, but I bought it from them and did that because I wanted to make sure they'll never be in a home. So they're taken care of. And then I built a really intense small it's a it's a sixth of an acre in the backyard but I, we produce all the fresh food we need out of there so yeah. and so extra water and it's built it all up so it's an excellent mini urban homestead right and then the 80 acres which i'm in partnership with another guy up here and we have this and this is where i'm building out a bigger model this is eventually going to be the ministry hub where we train people on the basic life skills so that's the idea to, so it's yeah. You know, there's a there's actually a really interesting ministry which I need to go up and visit, up in northern Canada, way up near Moose Jaw, and they do their ministry through a butchery. So literally, like they bring people in, and you are literally going to kill and butcher an animal while you're there, and you talk about changing people's lives. It's good, man. Yeah, yeah, that's very in line with what I've been thinking. Is all right. I'm going to build this place. I'm going to make sure it's big enough to bring people on board. And I'm going to homestead and I'm going to figure out what kind of ministry God has for me in the future. And, and, and it has to do with our property because it's got these massive, beautiful views and we want it to be a ministry. Oh, it's, um, and same here. I'll send you a couple of pictures. I'm going to, I'll link directly with you on signal. I think I'm still connected with you through Corey, but I'll send, I'll send you yeah. over a bit here in a bit. So, okay. All right. Thanks, good. chief. Hey, it's thanks, awesome. Scott. Man. I really appreciate it, man. God bless you. Have a great day. And you I'll, too. Uh, I'll let you know how my HVAC goes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, God bless you. We'll talk soon. Okay. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah, Bye-bye. Well, Patriots, that was Senior Chief Dixon Brown, just an incredible American hero and service to our nation, just one of the best. And then, again, a signatory on the, on the Declaration of Military Accountability. I think as you start to hear more and more of these people, you're starting to realize, at least I hope you're realizing, just the level of performers that these are. These are some of the military's finest that they've been driving out. And that's at the behest and, I believe, direction of our most of our GO staff, our general officers. 
they want that and for whatever reasons. And I would just classify that as treason. My general catch-all for every general officer these days in the military, traitor, treason, which has a nice little category in UCMJ, which I, th I think treason ultimately is, it's either like 20 years of making big rocks to small rocks, but if it's really bad, then it's swinging in the wind with a hemp rope. And I, I, that's all deserved at this point because this is the things that they've been doing to our military are unconscionable. These are generals that have overseen the destruction of lives and the killing and murder of our soldiers, of our airmen, of our infantrymen, sailors, Marines. And this is all being done because they, somebody bought them off and had got them involved in doing this transhumanist agenda and pushing an mRNA shot. It's incredible. So here's a man who's dedicated his life to service, walks with God, has made some great impact in the service, and now is out, and, and that's good because he's going to be fighting that fight from out here, and it's going to be the fight that we all are involved in, which is the fight with, with God on our side and taking this nation back. All good things. Patriots, thank you for being here tonight. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time and this place for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you tomorrow morning for Bended Knee. Until then or until the next time, God bless. Good night. Thank you. And out for now. Oh, I want to feel something. I just want to breathe.